Hello and welcome to the GLD podcast, Governance Uncovered, Local Politics and Development, supported by the Swedish Research Council. This month, we talk to Insta Karigi, PhD student at Sciences Po Paris. Today's discussion focuses on her latest research, which looks at Tunisia's municipal boundary reform process. Intersar examines how the municipal boundary decisions were made, which actors who were involved, and the logic that shaped the reform process. This study has recently been published as a GLD working paper called Municipal Boundaries and the Politics of Space in Tunisia. The paper is part of the larger GLD in the MENA project, funded by the Hisham Alouai Foundation. You can find more information about Intisar and her research in the description below. As always, this podcast is hosted by GLD director Ellen Lust. We hope you enjoy the episode. So Intisar, thank you very much for joining today. I'm really excited to talk to you about your new working paper with GLD that looks at the processes and outcomes of decentralization in Tunisia. As many people might know, after the uprisings in Tunisia, 2010 and 2011, and then the new constitution in 2014, there was a move towards decentralization and the extension of municipalities across the Tunisian territory. So chapter seven of the new constitution that was adopted in January of 2014 actually explicitly provided for decentralization and began a process that aimed to implement it. So I think it might help for everybody to understand the nature of that process, if we can get a sense of what the system was like before 2014, and then before, of course, implementation in 2015. So can you describe a little bit for us the level of decentralization and the role of municipalities that had existed before? I think it's important first to talk about why decentralization was seen as such an important element of the new constitution. Because actually, during the uprising itself, local authorities were really bearing the brunt of a lot of the public anger and popular protests. So because they were the the front line, they're really the closest manifestation of central state to citizens. Many of them were the subject of protests. Many members of the municipal councils and regional councils simply stopped showing up to them at the municipality because they were so afraid, actually, of the wave of the degage movement that was calling out public officials for corruption and really forcing them out of office. So if we look at the system of decentralized governance before the revolution and before 2018, which is when the system changed in the law, you have on one hand the decentralized local authorities, which are the municipalities as the smallest unit. Um, There were 264 municipalities. And you also have above them regions, so regional councils, and there are 24 regions across Tunisia. And these two were in law nominally supposed to be elected. They're supposed to be elected representatives. You had the show, like in many countries around the region, of having regular elections of municipal councils every five years. But really, it was very clear who was going to win, which was the ruling RCD party. On the other hand, you have deconcentrated authorities. So deconcentration in the Tunisian context, state appoints or delegates power to subnational units who are still nominally under the control or really under the control of central authorities. So you have the governorates, which are, there are 24 governorates, which also their boundaries overlap with those of regions. And then you also have Martem Diet. Uh, and Aimedet, which are really responsible for security, for maintaining security, and also they have various responsibilities to do with local development. 
So what you have with the system is that there is a very strong, really, domination by the central state over all of these local authorities. So municipalities and regional councils really operated under the control or the tutel of the regional governor, the Weli, um, who was a civil servant appointed by the president and by the Ministry of Interior, who represents the central state at the regional level. So sort of like the préfet uh, in the French system. These local authorities really had very little autonomy at all, whether it came to administrative autonomy, so adopting their own budgets, issuing their own decisions. Everything was really subject to the control of central authorities. When it came to fiscal or financial autonomy, also they have very little financial or fiscal powers. All decisions regarding local taxes and tax collection were all made by the central state. And so when the revolution happened, local governments were very much seen as the representatives and the faces of the central state. One thing that I've been curious about or trying to understand, so at the time of the uprisings, if I understand it correctly, if we were thinking about that first level, the elected councils, even though they were under the tutelage of the central government, they only covered a little bit less than 10% of the territory, right? They have about two thirds of the population, but if we're thinking about the territorial expansiveness of them, they're quite limited. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. So there's a curious overlap in Tunisian administrative law between municipalities and urban areas. So municipalities were really generally found in highly urbanized areas, whereas rural areas tended to be non-municipalized. So there's no municipality. So the people living in those regions didn't have access to municipal services. And they were instead directly overseen by rural councils, uh, which were sort of bodies that had very few formal powers and were directly under the control of the regional governor or the Weli. And so when the revolution happened, the municipal system actually only covered two-thirds of the population, as you said, with one-third being excluded completely from municipal services. So these are basic services like waste collection, street lighting, municipal roads, pavements, and certain social, economic, cultural activities and facilities. And these areas, which were non-municipalized, also happen to be largely in interior regions, which have already suffered from lack of infrastructure and investment, and where the revolution first started. So then when we think about the calls and the grievances that were being raised during the revolution with regards to municipalities, you mean you were describing how local council members didn't want to go to their offices, that people were sort of afraid... Was that only in the places that had municipalities officially and were supposed to be kind of local rule? Or was that also occurring in these other kind of more rural areas? How do we understand the relationship between the grievances and the calls and these two different systems that coexisted at the same time? It's interesting, actually, when you speak to people, they don't really differentiate very much between the different types of bodies. So municipalities and regional councils were not seen as being autonomous bodies that are supposed to be representative, that are supposed to be to actually voice local interests, all of these different bodies. So municipalities and regional councils, and also or delegations, delegations, they're known in French, and uh, the wilaya, the governorate, they were all seen as being very much part of the same central system, centrally controlled system, which was there to really represent the central state, not local interests, and to control really and to implement central decisions at the local level. And so people didn't really differentiate between what is a municipality and what is a matandia. All of them were really seen as having failed to deliver on the public demands of development, of balanced regional development, 
because that really territorial inequalities really played a very important role in the uprising, that you have regions where the poverty rate and the unemployment rate are two, three, four times as high as the national average. And so all these bodies were seen as having failed completely and being complicit in the system of the failed development model and failed governance. And so all of them were subject actually to these grievances and to these demands. And so what happened directly after the uprising, very few weeks after Ben Ali fled on the 14th of January 2011, is that municipal councils were dissolved. And that's a sign that the central government actually realized that it wouldn't be possible to maintain these bodies because they lacked legitimacy completely. And most of them were not actually functioning, given that people were rejecting them at the local level. So municipal councils were dissolved and they were replaced by temporary bodies called special delegations. And since then, their situation has been difficult. And so decentralization and the local elections that happened in 2018 was also a way of really addressing the lack of local, of legitimate local authorities at the local level. That since 2011, there's been really a vacuum at the local level in terms of local representative authorities that are really able to govern, able to deal with local populations, to manage local services to deliver local services as well. And so there was a real need for decentralization just to really fill this gap as well in local authority. So if I hear you correctly, then, I mean, a lot of concerns were more about unbalanced development and the issues of service delivery per se, a bit less initially, at least in terms of the questions about elected local officials versus a more less direct than democratic system. To what extent, you mentioned the concern of legitimacy, to what extent do we hear those connections, the idea that somehow a democratically elected local council is more legitimate, is better able to deliver at the very local levels, say in the interior? To what extent does that seem to matter to people? Do you have any sense? Based on fieldwork and conversations in different regions, it really does seem to make a difference. One indication of that is the fact that after the uprising, in that period after 14th of January 2011, when really central state authority was quite absent at the local level, what we found is that many local residents got together and they themselves actually elected or had some sort of selection process for putting together a replacement or temporary municipal councils. And so you had across Tunisia in different regions, people would get together. Often it would involve these organized forces, the committees for the protection of the revolution that were formed during the uprising, but also that would involve civil society activists, trade unionists, political opposition members, active members of the local community who would come together and actually have some sort of selection or election process for a new municipal council. So people took things into their own hands and chose to replace these bodies, which suggests that it was important for them to have a local council that was seen as emanating somewhat from the local public will, even if the process was not strictly free and fair and very clear elections where everybody took place. But these bodies had legitimacy because they were seen as having been selected by important members of the local community. So in a way, after the revolution, you have a de facto decentralization that happened. So it's not just that the central state decided that it's time to decentralize, but what we see is that decentralization was happening on the ground because official municipal councils were being replaced by these bodies that were being elected locally and which asserted their authority and their legitimacy as being based in the popular will and as representing local interests. 
So then one of the things that did still have to be kind of decided, right? I mean, obviously the formal municipal election system also had to be decided, but was the issue of boundaries, right? So we're talking about localities coming together and electing councils that have uh, responsibilities in their communities or responsibilities in the localities. But we're also looking at a time when municipalities technically didn't cover all of Tunisian territory. And there was going to be a new question about what were the boundaries of the existing municipalities as well as where new municipalities would arise. So we see essentially through this process of an expansion or change of some municipalities and then a creation of new ones. You do a really fascinating analysis of the process of boundary reforms in the paper that we've just published. And I'd like to start by stepping back and thinking about why boundary reforms are so important, why that process was so important, and then talk a little bit about what drove it. Can you help us understand what the boundaries would mean to people on the ground? So I think it was really the only point on which all different political forces agreed after the revolution. So what we see is that there were many disagreements over the governance system, what kind of constitutional system should be adopted over different rights provisions. But decentralization in Chapter 7 enjoyed a very high level of consensus, despite the fact that the committee that drafted it contained political forces from across the spectrum, from you know communists, socialists, liberals, Islamists, conservatives, etc. And it was actually adopted overall as a chapter with over 98% approval, showing the high level of consensus. And so the issue of territorial justice was very important. And part of that is obviously having all the population covered by local governance and having the same access or the right to access services, even if we know that service provision is very patchy in reality. But at least the notion of equality in the constitution, which is enshrined in the constitution, requires that municipalities and all local governments should cover all territory and all of the population. So it was very important during the discussions of Chapter 7, there was a consensus that municipalization or generalizing municipalities to all Tunisian territory was very important because a third of the population were actually excluded from the right to receive municipal services. And that third of the population, as I mentioned, were concentrated in interior regions, which had become very symbolic after the uprising due to the fact that they had been the cradle of the revolution. So Article 131 of the Constitution sets out that local government has to cover all Tunisian territory. So that meant that the government had no choice but to actually extend municipalities to all of Tunisian territory and to the whole population. And so these uh, municipal boundary reforms were seen as being very closely tied to the concept of territorial justice and social, economic and political inclusion of all Tunisian territory. And chapter seven uh, speaks very clearly about uh, these issues that decentralization is about democracy, it's about having the right to elect local representatives, but it's also about development. It's also about extending the same economic and social rights to regions that have long been not just neglected or forgotten, but actually actively marginalized by the central state. And you see that in the language that was used in public discourse, that these regions are jihad muhammasha, that they have been actively marginalized by the central state and deprived of their resources and of their 
powers. So you have, uh, starting in 2014, after the constitution was adopted in January, that a reflection begins within central government about how to actually manage this process, which is a very complex one, because there are many technical and practical and logistical challenges to actually extending municipalities, because you have, for example, rural areas where there is a very low density of population. And how do you make sure that municipalities can actually deliver services to very far-flung communities, particularly in a context of economic challenges, significant economic challenges, where the, the state budget does not necessarily allow for hugely increasing the financial resources of local authorities. So there was a bit of a debate about whether really it was the right time to extend municipal services to throughout territory. But the notion of equality of all citizens that was set out in the constitution and the importance of the notion of territorial justice, given that the revolution came out of marginalized regions, made it really imposed on central government the need to really ensure that municipalities covered all of the population. And so we had a reform process that took place very rapidly, as I describe in the paper, over the course of about a year, a year and a half, and which amended the boundaries of existing municipalities. So some existing municipalities were expanded to cover joining territory that was not previously municipalized but also the creation of 86 new municipalities where it was not possible to extend a municipality to make it large enough to cover all of territory, then a new municipality was created. And these changes really represent the most extensive reform of administrative boundaries since the period immediately after independence. And so I look in the paper on what kind of process the municipal boundaries actually took, what kind of logics drove the boundaries, who was involved and who wasn't, which is an important question today. If we're talking about a revolution, if we're talking about reforming how politics and governance are done, it's very important to look at how policies are made and who is involved in reforms and who is not. And what I find generally in the paper is that actually the municipal process reflects a lot of institutional continuity. So we have actually that historical legacies that have long played a role in shaping municipal boundaries in Tunisia continue to operate very strongly. So you have a very centralized process that took place uh, largely in the capital. And this process reflects very much the same logics as those that shaped boundaries in 1956 onwards, so after independence, but also stretching back to the colonial period. So you call these the technocratic and clientelistic logics is the way that you put them in the paper. Can you give us a sense first what you mean by the technocratic logic and what that looked like? So you have a certain conception of how boundaries should be drawn, which is held very strongly by central authorities, in particular bureaucrats, who really insisted that boundaries should be drawn in the same way that they have always been drawn in the past, which is through a very closed and secretive process. And this really takes the view that involving the public in such processes would provoke instability and threaten social cohesion. It also draws on a historical understanding of national identity as requiring actually overlooking and denying the existence of local identities, because local identities and regional identities are seen as being a threat to national unity and ultimately to national security. So you have on one side this idea that reform process should happen very quickly, very discreetly, that it's not necessary to consult the local level, and that that's the best way to do things in order to avoid provoking a public debate on local and regional identities. 
And then on the other hand, you also have at the same time, so you have this technocratic logic, which states that it only uses neutral criteria, that it's really thinking about the public interest, imposing neutral criteria that don't favor any particular region and don't favor any particular party or economic interests. And then on the other hand, what you see is actually operating in practice alongside this technocratic logic is a clientelist logic, which really sees municipal boundaries very deeply shaped by political pressures, political parties, personal relationships between local elites and central elites, and also economic interests of particularly influential individuals at the local level. So you have these two contradictory logics that are sort of working side by side and combined to produce municipal boundaries that ultimately don't really satisfy local needs. So you've done this research, I should mention, by having interviews with over 200 officials, both in Tunis and then in other municipalities, and doing fieldwork in eight municipalities, where what we saw was actually contestation and then in some cases reversal of the boundaries. So you've mentioned it already, this question about whether or not we were taking into account local identities and other kinds of social issues and social structures. But can you give us a better picture of what that looked like? What was the kind of the missing, you termed it as they failed to engage with territories as lived spaces, but what that meant and why that led to this contestation. So I think it's uh, very frequently in boundary reform processes, the questions of local demands, local identities are always potentially problematic because it's difficult for decision makers to be able to satisfy or impossible for them to be able to satisfy all different local demands. And, And so these are always problematic issues. But what's interesting is that Whereas in many other contexts around the world, these factors are taken into account explicitly, but they are balanced against other considerations, like, for example, the viability of boundaries, financial resources, and implicitly political also pressures and partisan voter bases, for example. But at the same time, there is recognition by the central state that the notion of communities of interest is important. The idea that local patterns of belonging are important, that they have to be taken into account. And so we see that actually enshrined in legislation in many countries around the world where you have boundaries being reformed, whether electoral boundaries or administrative boundaries, that you have these references to local identities, patterns of mobility, for example, or economic flows, how people actually travel, where they work. This is taken as a starting point or at least a relevant factor in many different systems around the world for thinking about space in that the idea is space is not just produced by the central state and by the legal and administrative categories that are imposed by the central state, but space is also produced by people going about their business, interacting and producing space themselves. But what's interesting is that these local concerns are seen very much as either irrelevant or potentially threatening to the reform process. So central officials, in my seem to think that it's possible to actually make boundaries without consulting the local level. And that's actually a better way of doing policy because it overcomes the threat represented or minimizes the threat represented by local specificities and local identities. Because the idea was that once you open up this door to actually consulting people, then it's very difficult to close it and it's going to open up Pandora's box of different issues. And so what's interesting is that even those who are involved in the process said themselves, it's been a process that was done behind closed doors. It was very much driven sort of by statistics, by IT applications and simulations of thinking about central officials, thinking about how space should be managed and governed. And very few discussions with the local level. There were a few consultations at the time with the delegations that were in place. 
But obviously this took place before the local election. So there were no local representative authorities that actually participated in the process. So what we found is uh, that uh, in the end, municipal boundaries were produced that make little sense for residents in their day-to-day lives. So I found a number of interesting examples, and there are many more that I couldn't include in the paper. But where municipal boundaries really don't make sense, even not just subjectively, but objectively speaking, where municipal boundaries, they cut across neighborhoods. Um, So one municipality I visited, the municipality you cut right of municipal boundary between one municipality and the other, cut right down the middle of the main street in the neighborhood. So you had people who were from the same family, from the same community, were divided in two, with some of them having to be part of one municipality and others having to be part of another. You even had municipal boundaries that cut across houses. In one municipality that I went to in the south, you had people who, they say, you know, one one window in my house looks out onto one municipality and the other window looks out onto the other municipality. And this is one of the challenges when you don't have local consultation and local fieldwork, that human settlements change. People build houses. And so if, if the central state doesn't consult at the local level and doesn't descend to the local level and actually carry out engagement at the local level, then there is a reality that is very different. But the functional boundaries, how people actually use space and, and how they access municipalities is very different to the legal boundaries uh, that are imposed. And so you also, I mean, I have a number of examples in the paper about uh, municipalities where people find that they've suddenly become part of a municipality that they can't even access physically. One municipality in Qaira, when residents found themselves linked to a municipality where there's no road to actually be able to access the municipality. And in, in another one, you also had residents who were used to carrying out all their municipal services just across the road in municipality very close to them. But after the reforms, they found themselves attached to a municipality where they have to travel 40 kilometers just to get their administrative papers. So really, the paper also highlights how municipal boundaries play out at the local level and how these centrally driven state processes are actually challenged at the local level as well by the way space actually functions. And so what we have now, despite the fact that the municipal boundary process nominally finished or was completed in 2016, when all the legal decrees were issued, but actually there has been a lot of contestation and a lot of appeals against the boundaries. What has happened is that central government has actually been forced to integrate the factor of local uh, needs post facto. And so the consultation that was not carried out while uh, designing the reforms has had to be done now when there has been within the Ministry for Local Authorities, central government has had to set up a committee and a department specifically to look into these complaints because there have been hundreds of complaints by residents. And what's the implication of that kind of in the longer run? Do we have any sense of whether that makes the government appear more responsive in the end? Because there are places where the boundaries are even reversed, right? So there is a responsiveness that then takes place. Or is it that these inconveniences cause people to change how they think about themselves that create pressures for reform or social change at the local level? Do we, I know it, it requires looking into a crystal ball, but I'm also wondering from other cases that you've looked at and historically, if we have any sense of what this type of process does in terms of both changes at the local level, but also relations between the central and the local Tunisians. It is an interesting story of how local populations and local authorities are challenging central government in ways that were not possible before. So as you mentioned, there have been situations where municipal boundaries were reversed or changed due to local contestation. But when I actually examine these cases, I take a number of cases in the paper 
and I compare uh, municipalities that had local contestation of the boundary decisions and those where the decision was modified after local contestation and those with similar population sizes and similar demographic size and surface area where the decision was not modified or reversed. And what really seems to emerge is that the decision to modify a boundary decision really is related to the capacity of local residents to access central elite networks. And so where you have social contestation, where people go out onto the streets, where they protest, even where they put together petitions, they write to the president of the republic, they have protests outside the Ministry of Local Authorities, you have several instances where, despite all of that social contestation, which is ongoing in some municipalities, the boundary decision or the the reforms were not modified, were not changed. So the central government decided that's it. You've decided to set these boundaries and we're not going to change them. Whereas what I found in other municipalities is that when the pattern of mobilization or the methods used involved local elites accessing their networks of support at the central level, so for example, via Utica, for example, the Employers' Federation, via personal networks into central government, via partisan networks, via members of parliament. And so where the mobilization took place through these local central elite networks, local notables were much more effective getting these decisions reversed ultimately, and thus protecting their uh, interests, but also the economic interests of their areas. And so you could say that this shows that there is some possibility to mobilize at the local level and to be able to pressure central government to change its policies. But it's certainly not a very egalitarian or democratic method that a social mobilization, social contestation, unfortunately, is not sufficient on its own to be able to make much difference, at least in relation to the cases that I looked at. So that's one thing. Another thing I think is that the appeals process that is happening is also not very transparent. So you have a committee within the Ministry of Local Authorities, which is looking into these appeals. But at the same time, you don't really have much communication about the criteria. You know, what are the criteria actually for reversing a particular decision? And so the capacity for this kind of process to build trust, I think, is very limited because requests by local residents sort of go into a black box into this committee in central government where the composition of the committee is not communicated. The criteria and the process for examining these appeals are not really communicated. And so I don't think it really promises to be able to deliver much more or build trust between citizens and the state, unfortunately. So I think really the communication of criteria is something that's very important for people to understand why municipalities can be created in one place but not another. And we have this also in other processes around the world, that there are a clear set of criteria that are set out. Whether they're respected or not is another question, but at least people are given the chance to look at why municipalities might be expanded in one place, why they might be created in another, why they might be divided in another. But I think in a situation of political transition like Tunisia, it's really important to pay attention to these kinds of details, to thinking about how to build trust and how to build the legitimacy of these boundaries, because ultimately these boundaries are institutions that are going to shape the way that citizens interact with their local authorities. And so if the boundaries are seen to be produced through illegitimate processes, this also impacts the the capacity of the municipality to be able to exert authority and to be able to govern the space.
That's fascinating. And in some ways, when you're describing the appeals process or the contestation over it, it sounds like it mirrors the initial boundary reform process itself, right? That it's the closeness and the extent to which it might be still being driven by technocratic and clientelistic logics in terms of how responsive they are. Would that be a fair statement? I think so. I think there is still very much a hesitation and anxiety of talking about administrative boundaries. This results partly from the experience of the 2011 revolution. There has been a a sort of explosion of demands, local demands for changing administrative boundaries. So um, after the uprising, you had various areas of the country where people wanted their own governorate. And so this was seen as sort of the encouragement of a secessionist logic that each little area is going to become a kind of mini state. And this kind of fear of secessionism exists in every state, but also it's particularly present in the Tunisian context where really the national state building project has been based on a very particular vision of a homogenous and unified society. And so this kind of view that Habib Bourguiba expressed often that there should be no such thing as people from this area and that area, that there are only Tunisians, that local identities do not exist. And so there is an awkward tension between the reality of these divisions and official state discourse, which does not recognize the existence of these identities. And so it's very difficult to have a public debate, I think, because for so long, the state has chosen to deal with these local identities by effectively denying their existence uh, and also seeking to weaken them. And so this is why I think that municipal boundaries are such a problematic issue for central government, because it really sits very awkwardly with the way that central government has perceived space, has perceived populations as needing to be managed at the central level and for geographical and sociological realities are irrelevant to that management. That's great. And it also fairly large and I think a really interesting section of the paper that we haven't had a chance to touch on today, which is the historical period and looking at the post-1956 boundary changes as well. So your recalling of how Bourguiba's vision of we are all Tunisians and that local sort of variations and local social divisions are not important and where you're from is not important. And that juxtaposition with the realities on the ground, I think is fantastic and fascinating. I know that we're running out of time. Is there anything else, though, that you think listeners should know that we haven't had a chance to touch on? I think what I was interested in, in terms of my research, is just how much historical continuity there is. So I think that there is this, as we see in many other aspects of the transition in Tunisia, is this tension between change and continuity, that you have a desire for a rupture with the past. The idea of the constitution and of chapter seven was this idea of a break with the past, with heritage of highly centralized rule on one hand. And then on the other, you see in reality, in the processes of decision making, in the logics and the frameworks that are drawn driving decision-making and shaping how people think about how boundaries should be drawn, you see a lot of continuity dating back, as I've shown the paper, to the colonial era, really, where you have whole machinery that was put in place for managing local populations. And so it's an interesting instance of looking at the the tension between change and continuity and, and how far you can actually achieve this kind of rupture in the context of deeply rooted and resilient state institutions and ways of thinking about space and ways of doing things. And so the paper really illustrates that and delves into problems 
problematics that exist across the region about how to really manage this tension between continuity of preserving certain aspects of the system of institutions, but at the same time changing and being able to rise to the challenge of responding to public grievances that until now are still not really being addressed 10 years after the uprising. Thank you. And again, I really also thank you for the rich paper, but also the discussion today, because I think it highlights a lot of the most important issues. And the paper is, again, not only clearly makes this argument, but it's very rich and really fascinating. So thank you for your work and your collaboration with us and for taking time to talk to us today. Thank you, Ellen. Thanks to GLD. And I hope that people enjoy reading the paper. Mm-hmm.